our world. Nobody truly knows where it came from or how it got here. Of course, we all have our own opinion of what or how it happened. Everything from a bunch of chemicals that happened upon each other and blasted us into a planet perfect for us all to live on to it being the work of perfection of our creator. Nobody knows exactly when this happened or how old the world actually is. Some say millions of years, while others argue that it's only a few thousand. The inhabitants of this old world, through the many years of their existence, have lived through and witnessed some pretty unbelievable historical atrocities. They have lived through everything from serial killers to weird creatures that show up and destroy their lives. The worst creature of them all, though, just might be man himself. I, being born and raised in the Appalachian Mountains, know that nothing is beyond the pale of belief, no matter how fantastic it sounds. The history that lies in these mountains is rich and has a long legacy of unending tales and adventures. This old world outside of these mountains has seen its share of it as well. Come with me as I take you on a fantastic journey around the world for we seek out things that are not always as they seem, and history is not always as what we've been told. I guarantee it won't be anything like you expected. Hello, I'm Larry Bentley, and this is World of Murder, Mystery, and Legend. Most of us go through our daily grind without so much as putting any thought into the fact that somebody might want us dead. Most, like me before I researched this episode, think that if somebody murders another here in the United States, most of the time they're going to prison or for life or maybe be put to sleep like a rabid dog. But I found out that only 54.4% of all murders are solved in this country. Most of that is due to the overstacked caseloads of the detectives working the cases as well as underfunding of police departments. Simply put, there's more murder to go around than there are those trying to solve it. Certainly that leaves families wondering what exactly happened to their loved one when tragedy like this strikes them. Sometimes, though, everybody, including the police, know exactly who did what with, with what and where they did it, but can't for the life of them prove it. Those cases really have to be frustrating to everybody involved as they watch the perpetrator live out his or her life without a care in the world for what they've done or who they've done it to. Come on and get comfortable and listen to the true story. We'll call this one the Green Bicycle. As promised, since the British Isles are sisters of the Appalachian Mountains, this one takes place in the United Kingdom city of Gobi in the county of Leicester. Leicester is a city and unitary authority area in the East Midlands of England and the county town of Leicestershire and the city lies on the River Soar and close to the eastern end of the National Forest. It's to the northeast of Birmingham and Coventry, south of Nottingham and west of Peterborough. In 1900, the Great Central Railway provided another link to London, but the rapid population growth of the previous decades had 
had already begun to slow by the time of Queen Victoria's death in 1901. World War I and the subsequent epidemics had further impacts. Nonetheless, Lancaster was finally recognized as a legal city once more in 1919 in recognition of its contribution to the British war effort. Recruitment to the armed forces was lower in Lancaster than in the other English cities, partially because of the low level of unemployment and the need for many of its industries, such as clothing and footwear manufacturing, to supply the army. As the war progressed, many of Lancaster's factories were given over to arms production. Lancaster produced the first batch of howitzer shells by a British company, which was not making ammunition before the war. On the evening of July 5, 1919, at around 6.45 p.m., 21-year-old factory worker Bella Wright was riding her bike. Bella was going to visit her uncle, George Measure, in Gobi, in a small village in the city of Leicester, England. Bella Wright was an attractive young woman who was engaged to a stoker in the Royal Navy named Archie Ward, and she also attracted the attention of several other men. She had just finished up a stint working as a domestic servant after leaving school at 12 years old, as many people did back then, but by 1919, she was working late shift at a rubber factory. That was hard work, but a good-paying job for the day. She would ride the five-mile journey on her bike for each shift, and even when she was off from work, she would ride her bike everywhere to carry out her various errands of the day. En route to her uncle's that particular evening, the front wheel of her bike became loose. She stopped to take a look at it, and as she did, a kindly stranger came over to the young woman to offer his assistance. The man didn't have any tools with him, which could help him tighten the wheel, but he offered to travel beside her until she reached her destination. And Bella took the man up on his offer, and two made the journey to her uncle's home. After arriving at her uncle's, the mystery man with his distinctive green bicycle fixed Bella's tire. He did so as she went on to talk to her uncle and his son-in-law, who had happened to be visiting at the time. George Measure later stated that he didn't like the look of the man, who was described as being in his mid to late 30s with dark hair, but he kept his mouth shut about it as he didn't want to meddle in Bella's business. Bella had obviously felt comfortable in the man's company and according to her uncle he had she had called him a perfect stranger now there are two red flags that you can look at in my radar anyway at some time between 8 30 and 9 o'clock she said goodbye to her uncle and kicked up the kick down stand and took off beside the stranger who waited over an hour for him for the love of mike her uncle just watched her ride away it was just about 9.20 that evening when Joseph Cowell, a local farmer driving cattle, spotted a bicycle at the end of the Gartree Road. As Mr. Cowell got closer to the bike, he noticed a young woman covered in blood in the roadside and called the police. What with it being 1919 and all, calling the police meant running around till you seen one of, one of them and dragging them back to the scene. Of course, they had to then run until they found a doctor to drag back with him. By the time all of that was done, 
The three men hurried back to the scene, but it was too late. The young man was or woman was already dead when they got there. Now, the doctor was of the belief that the young woman had died as a result of a tragic accident, that she had simply fallen off her bike, whacked her head, and that was that. The police officer, a man named Alfred Hall, wasn't as convinced. He thought the whole thing stunk to high heaven. By this time, it was dark on the roadside, so a thorough examination of the body in the scene wasn't possible. You know, no flashlights out of the out in the country and all, and, so the body was moved to a nearby cottage. Although there was no signs of a struggle or violence where they found her, Officer Hall had spotted traces of blood on a nearby gate. And the blood was the imprint of a bird's claw. A further look around saw the discovery of the bird, a black bird, which had seemingly managed to choke itself to death while gorging on the body that they had found, it was assumed. It wasn't until the following morning when the officers' worries of a more sinister event having occurred that was proven correct. The next day, it was confirmed that the victim was Bella Wright. It was also confirmed that her death was no accident. She had been murdered. A search of the crime scene in daylight early the next morning by Officer Hall saw the discovery of a 45 caliber bullet dug into the ground less than 20 feet from where Bella Wright's body was discovered. An examination of her body once cleaned up also located an entry room for a bullet just under the young woman's left eye. A larger exit wound was found in what was left at the back of her head. As soon as George Measure told police that the last time he'd seen Bella, she was in the company of a mysterious stranger, he became the obvious prime suspect. Posters were sent out in hopes of identifying the unnamed suspect, but nobody was able to come forward and put a name to him. Owners of green bicycles all across the region regretted ever buying one as each time under suspicion, they were all pulled over by the police and turned out that they were gossips all over the town about the people wearing, or having the green bicycles. However, every one of them was cleared, at least in the eyes of the police, that is. Despite the best efforts of the local constabulary and even the help of Scotland Yard, the investigation into murder of Bella Wright went nowhere. And that was until February 23rd of the following year. A stroke of luck gave them renewed hope and a name. On that day, a worker named Enoch Whitehouse was guiding a canal boat filled with coal along the bank of the River Soar. Ironically, to the rubber factory where Bella Wright had been working. So he was headed over there with the coal. All of a sudden, its tow rope became snagged on something in the water. On pulling the item to the surface, it was soon revealed that the item was a green bicycle frame. Enoch Whitehouse immediately recalled the murder of Bella Wright from the previous summer in the hunt for an owner of that green bicycle, and he called the police and spilled his guts. The rest of the river was dragged, seamed, and dredged, and further parts belonging to the same bike were found. A later search of a nearby canal also saw the discovery of an Army-issued pistol holder and several cartridges. And investigating the bike frame, 
It seemed the owner had attempted to scratch off and remove both the brand name of the bike and its serial number, but they hadn't gone a good enough job because, unbeknownst to the owner of the bike, the builders had a secret identification mark on it, all of its bikes. The ID number of the bike was 103648. That was revealed that it could now be traced back to its owner, and the police finally had a name to drag downtown for questioning. He was Ronald Light, a former civil engineer who was working as a mathematics teacher at Cheltenham and a job he had taken just fairly recently when he was pounced on and arrested on March 4, 1920, just over a week after the discovery of the bike in the river Soar. When asked to explain himself as to how the bike came to be in the river, he said that he had no idea and added that he'd never owned such a bike then after having some kind of epiphany, he changed his story and, oh yeah, he remembered he sold the bike. Now, when we look at this through the lens of time, we have to consider the interrogation techniques of the day back then. People subjected to interrogation back then were sometimes known to come out of the room with multiple contusions, various abrasions, and even broken bones, and occasionally were wheeled out feet first with a low probability of pulling through. Unfortunately for Ronald Light, a witness had come forward saying that he had seen a man dumping the bike in the river. Description of the man was an exact match for Mr. Light. Another witness was Harry Cox. Mr. Cox had repaired a distinctive green bike on the day of Bella Wright's murder. So Mr. Light was placed in a lineup and fingered by Mr. Cox as the customer he dealt with. Finally, George Measure and his Son-in-law both identified Ronald Light as the man who had accompanied Bella to his home that night that she was murdered. At this point, it certainly appears that they have the murderer, don't it? But that wasn't all. Two young girls, 12-year-old Valerina Caven and 14-year-old Muriel Nunley, and had reported that earlier in the day of the murder that they had been pestered and frightened by a man on a green bicycle. They, too, picked the Mr. Light out of the lineup. Evidence against Ronald Light was stacking up against him, and came the news that the pistol holder had been issued to him. Despite the overwhelming amount of circumstantial evidence, Ronald Light still denied everything to the hilt. Though the pistol holder was assigned to him, it wasn't his, and the bike wasn't his either. While he'd never even been anywhere near Gobi, and it certainly didn't pump a slug through Bella's head, or what was left of it. That didn't matter. They busted him through the teeth with the paperwork, charging him with murder, and threw him in a cell. Three months after his arrest, the trial of Ronald Light for the murder of Bella Wright began on June 8, 1920. Mr. Light was to be defended by the famous defense attorney, Sir Edward Marshall Hall, Esquire. As the attorney general set about proving the case against young Mr. Light and his constant lies, Sir Edward Hall told the attorney general his attempts were not needed. His client was now admitting that he was indeed the owner of the bike and the pistol holder, and he was indeed the man who had journeyed with Bella Wright the night of her death. The two young girls had claimed Ronald Light had frightened him on the day Bella Wright's murder were dealt 
and expertly dealt with expertly too by Sir Ronald Hall. Muriel and Valeria went from being perceived as two little innocent angels to two troublemakers who only came forward after months of newspaper stories for a bit of mischief. The judge himself even told the jury to ignore the testimonies in their final verdict. Folks, this guy was racehorse Haynes before there was racehorse Haynes. The attorney general's witness now all being dealt with, it was time for Sir Edward Hall to play his trump card and call the accused himself to the stand. Ronald Light gave the impression of a calm and dignified man who had simply had a moment of madness at the thought of even being wrongly accused. Mr. Light testified that he had indeed met Ballarite in the village of Little Stretton that early that evening on July 5th, 1919, and had ridden with Bella after finding her having difficulties with her own bicycle, and he followed her to her uncle's in Gobi. He stated that it was the first time he had met the young woman. He denied any encounter at all with any other young girls that day, and Mr. Light claimed that he hadn't planned to ride back with Bella and, and had instead gone off while she was with her uncle's home and to head back to Leicester. However, his tire went flat. By the time he fixed it and decided to see if the young woman was ready to ride back, he's claiming she just happened to appear from inside her uncle's at the time he arrived back. That's a, what a coincidence, huh? In his testimony, Ronald Light next stated that he only rode with the victim for about 10 minutes. After that, at this point, he was still having problems with his tires, so the young woman and himself parted ways at the crossroads close to King King's Norton. He then had to walk home with a flat tire, thus he was late home. His mother's maid had previously mentioned him arriving home late. When questioned about the green bicycle, Light said that he had read about the murder in the newspaper a couple of days later and knew he was the man suspected of a murder. Rather than come forward, he was terrified that his version of events wouldn't be believed and so he decided to keep his yap shut, which he admitted was a stupid mistake on his part. He also claimed his mother was unwell and not putting stress on her was another reason he didn't come forward. He claimed he never went out on the bike again, and some months later he broke it up and threw it in the river along with the pistol holder, denying he ever had the pistol that went with it after coming back from the war on a stretcher from being shot in the rear end while running away from the enemy. Mr. Light never faltered from his story during the hours of cross-examination from the prosecution. This time, they couldn't use the rubber hoses and brass knuckles. The case for the defense then moved into the firearms experts' evidence. The prosecution stated their belief that Ballarat was shot from a distance of around seven feet. Sir Edward Hall argued that this couldn't be the case, that the shot at sort of distance or had been shot from a distance and would have left a far larger entry wound. He also stated that the distance at the which the bullet would travel from the exit wound would have also been far greater if it had been at seven feet. Attorney Hall also pointed out that although the bullets found in the river with the holster were the same caliber as the trivial, uh, the bullets had made their own million or were made in the millions, so it meant nothing. In fact, the he argued that the bullet found may not even have been the bullet that the police dug out of the ground, and it may not even have been the same one that killed Bella Wright.
A theory that he gave was that Bella Wright was the victim of a tragic accident and that the stray bullet shot by somebody hunting in a neighboring field had killed her. Finally, Sir Edward Hall asked that what was the motive and what reason did Ronald Light have to murder Bella Wright? Of course, nowadays we know people commit murder for no reason whatsoever, but back in 1920 they believed the motive was needed to and people just didn't kill for the pleasure of it or any other meaningless reason. This was clearly before the rise of the deviant. From all known evidence, the two were complete strangers. No intimate contact had taken place, nor was there a robbery. The defense attorney had made his case perfectly. The jury took three hours and seven minutes to reach final decision. Ronald Light was declared not guilty, a verdict which was roundly cheered in the courtroom gallery. Bella's family were understandably quite irritated. Experts throughout the 100-some-odd years since the murder of Bella Wright still to this day argue over whether Ronald Light got away with murder. Those who claim he did state the evidence was overwhelming and that social class was what actually determined the outcome of the case. It was also possible that Ronald Light was responsible, but that it all was a terrible accident. A note allegedly written by Levi Bowley, a superintendent at the Lockhester Police Station, states that Ronald Light admitted in his cell that he had accidentally shot Bella Wright when his gun inadvertently discharged while he was showing it off to the poor girl. The problem with this story is that the letter in question was never been confirmed as authentic. Others believe that Sir Edward Marshall Hall may have been on, on to something with his story about a stray bullet. Another similar theory surrounds the bird found at the scene where Bella Wright's body was found. The hypothesis is that the bird didn't choke on Bella's blood, but was actually shot by a hunter. The bullet then passed through the bird and struck Bella Wright in the face in a horrific accident. The shooter, realizing Bella was dead, ran like a scalded dog in fear of his story not being believed and never came back. I guess after a hundred years, we'll never know for certain and the murder of Bella Wright and the green bicycle mystery will remain unsolved. I must admit that one of my first suspects in the killing was a hunter accidentally shooting the poor girl, but we'll leave it for you to figure out, and maybe you can come out with what you think and who done it if you'll go over to Appalachian Myrtle Mystery and Legend podcast and maybe drop me a line, and we'll see what we can come up with. Hope you enjoyed our story today. If you have, please rate and review the podcast and don't forget to follow us. I thank you so much for subscription. You're subscribing to this. and it means so much to my Appalachian heart. I'll be back real soon with another episode of the World of Murder, Mystery, and Legend. And I'll see you then.